0: Thank you, Vera. Eric's already on his way China and Japan and then eventually Indonesia. Vera and Agnes will be joining them uh, on Friday, so that we won't be seeing them for about a month. We pray that you guys have a good trip. Think about that as you get prepared. They'll be visiting actually, a, a, hopefully, a missionary friend of mine in Japan, the Files. Some of you may know them, John, John and Sarah Files. They actually were here oh, maybe a year or so ago. They were able to stop in, so... Well, if you've been reading through the Bible along with us, uh, and I know some of you have been, I want to encourage you to continue doing that. One of the great benefits I personally have experienced is hearing from other people who are reading through and seeing different things than I am. And just in, encountering kind of uh, God, uh, some of the insight and wisdom that come from uh, walking through the Bible together. It's, it's really exciting. If, if you haven't been kind of along with us, you know, you can catch up pretty easily even just on the big storyline. We read in Genesis that God created everything. and We know that uh, sin entered the world uh, and gen- as early as Genesis chapter 3. So the story of the Bible is God reconnecting us with him uh, against the, the face and the reality of, of sin that has entered into the world. And he chooses to do that. Through a man, Abraham, who was a man of faith and believed God's promises. And uh, God gave him a a son. And from that, uh, many would come. They would be the the children of Israel. And they'd end up in Egypt where they had a lot of favor in the beginning through Joseph. Uh, And unfortunately, over time, as they multiplied, they became a threat to the ruling order of the day. So they were enslaved. And now we get to the point where God raises up a leader, Moses. Moses. Somebody who's uniquely postured, having grown up in the house of Pharaoh, but being a Jew, called to God late, by God later in his life to go back and say, set my people free. And that's what the book of Exodus is about. Is about. So that happens in Exodus. They, they finally are, are set free as God works all kinds of miracles. And now they're wandering in the desert. They're on their way to the promised land. God has, through his promises, said, I'm going to give you a specific place but now they're not quite there yet. And as you open up the pages of Numbers, they, they have uh, sand in their eyes. You know, they can't quite see the promised land or they're looking at it, but the wind whips up dust and they feel like they're trying to taste God's promises, but sometimes all they can taste is granules of sand and it's hard to see that these things are actually going to come about. And yet Moses is called to lead these people who are wandering around. And they're easily discouraged or discontent. And that's what this passage is very much about. Some some of you uh, know Keith Green. I've referenced him before, a 1970s artist who wrote a, a whole album called So You Want to Go Back to Egypt? Uh, as he was exploring that, you know, God had given the manna. He gives it here in, in this text as well. We read and. On that album, he talks about all the different kind of manna versions. Because for 40 years, they'd be eating these things. So manna waffles, manna burgers, manna bagels, filet of manna, manna patties, ba bread. They said, that's him, not me. (laughs) Although I could see me saying that. As well, it gets kind of tiring after a little while. And the interesting thing here is we see there's clearly a text about a lot of frustration. It's early on. In their wanderings and already they have lost sight. There are dangers at times like this. Certainly for them but for us as well. When we're facing discouragement and we feel like we're looking but we just can't see God at work. In the ways we would like him to be at work. You can grow easily discouraged. So this text is a lot about shaking off the dust of discontentment. And the first part of this uh, section is then we really see the people and their discontentment, kind of the seeds of discontentment that we can see in our own lives because they're humans just like us. And then the second half, what you see really is one way that we can respond to that discontentment. Moses becomes the target. So we can learn something about what it's like just to be discontent by the people. But what if we're the target? What if we have discontent people around us all the time? How do we respond to that? That's kind of what this text is about. Now, To get there, last week we saw that Jesus in Leviticus was the perfect fulfillment of the Levitical laws. And we spent some time trying to show that. He was the perfect priest, he was completely holy. That book was all about holiness and set apartness and then also offerings. He was the perfect sacrifice. In the book of Leviticus, they say you have to make atonement, there's a price paid for sin, Jesus pays the price. That's what it's looking forward to, to make us right with God. And the practice of the Levitical laws, we argued, is obsolete. But their underlying purpose remains. They were carefully put in place to demonstrate what? The distinctiveness of Israel's God. That was the point of Israel. He's different than all the other gods, of Exodus, all the other gods. And my people are to be different from everybody else as well. So he says here, I've taken you out of Egypt You're going to be different than them. So one part in Numbers, he actually says, you're not going to be like the people where you came from. And guess what? You're not going to be like the people where you're going. You are distinct. You're different. And the book of Leviticus is underlying that in ways that seem strange to us, but show that they are not the same. They're to be different in observable ways. You can actually notice it. And when Jesus says to his followers many years later, in John 17, he's praying, and kind of a distillation of that prayer is, God, I pray that my disciples, the people who follow me, would be in the world, be engaged, but not of it, that they'd be distinct, that they'd be different. That's a very challenging concept, and working that out is something that the church has tried to do for years, and people have different approaches on it, but we can probably agree that followers of Jesus are to be different than those who are, around, are not followers of Jesus. Would you say that's true? That there has to be something distinct about someone who's a follower of Christ. One of the great discouragements, of course, is when people look around and don't see a difference. You can grow jaded and, 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 and discouraged or discontent for sure. But before you start looking at others, take a look at yourself. We're talking about individual renewal, right? How are you distinct or different from everybody at home? How does your home look different? Because you say I'm a follower of Christ. In the way that you speak to your roommate or to your spouse, kids, parents. What's distinctive? Is there anything distinctive? What about at work? Uh, and the way that you talk about your boss, or your coworkers, or actually the effort that you give towards your particular job, even if you don't like it, is there anything at all distinctive about the way that you are engaging in play, in entertainment, or the way that you handle all the wonderful access that we have, for example, to technology, How are you different in the way that you use your phone? We're 8 minutes and 15 seconds into my message right now. Don't worry, I'm timing it. But what about that? What about the applications, the way that you use them, the way that you communicate to others, the way that it controls you, or do you control it? How are you distinctive from anybody else? You are called, as a follower of Christ, to be different. In speech, in thought, in expectations, in values, in relationships, in your use of time. If you look like everybody else, maybe you're not really being true to the calling God has put on you to be grafted into this Israelite nation that we read about that is distinct from those around us. And that's, there's, there's some work to be done, but let me show you that I think this is still the calling, even for people who wander around in this desert of, uh, that we experience culturally of, in the New Testament era as well. Here's what God said to the, at the preface of the Ten Commandments. Out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, priests are the ones who would make a way, You be the intermediaries between the people and God. He says, you're going to be like that. You're going to be like a pathway for people to get to God, strangely. And a holy nation, set apart, distinct, separate as a group of people. Now, Peter in the New Testament would repeat the same thing. Listen to this language. But you, this is in the New Testament, Peter's writing to the church you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Doesn't that sound suspiciously like Exodus 19? A people belonging to God. Now here's what difference he, make, he says that makes. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, amazing language, just like the, New, the Old Testament wanderings. You're, you're wandering, you're strangers, you're aliens, you're headed toward a different destination, right? Right? To abstain from sinful desires. What difference does it make? How are you distinctive? What's it going to look like for you to be my treasured possession? Abstain from sinful desires. Which war against your soul. It's a battle. It's not easy. You know, war language is not pretty. We we don't know what that's like because we live mostly in a time of peace. Maybe some of you have seen war. It's not pleasant. It's hard. You're on guard all the time. Live such good lives among the pagans, those who would reject Christ, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So Peter is saying, here's who you are, treasured, a holy nation, a chosen people, and who you are needs to inform what you do. It's got to. There's a, there's a relationship between those two realities. What you do flows from who you are. They cannot be separated. But as we all know, living out who we are is a challenge, isn't it? Why? Because we have things we're fighting against. And, well, the, we would learn uh, again in the Bible we have some enemies the world, the system around us that rejects God, the flesh, our own sin nature, that stuff inside of us that says, eh don't really want to obey God, kind of want to do my own thing. And the devil, a real entity whose desire is to see you wander and stray from the things that you're supposed to be doing. So if you feel like it's hard, like, yeah, I know who I am, but I have a hard time doing this. That's why even Paul would struggle with this. This great New Testament figure who planted who wrote half of the New Testament said, Why am I doing the things I don't want to do? I've got this war inside of me. Now he realizes the only hope he has for progress is Christ. It's driving him again to the cross, to the sacrifice, to the to the fullness of what Christ has done, but it's still a real battle. And yet just because it's a battle doesn't mean he just throws up the white flag and says, Forget it. Forget about it. I'm done. He's going to engage it. He wants to be distinctive. And so we ought to as well. And the book of Numbers shows just how challenging this is to work out. At least to me it does. These people have been miraculously led. I mean, all kinds of miracles. For people who say, if God just showed me something, then, then I'd believe in him. Really? I mean, that, that, that's, that's what happens here. God shows up in crazy miraculous ways. And it's exciting times, but these people quickly forget what he's done. So it's not just what you see. I mean, faith is trusting in God, even when you can't see what he's been doing. But there's lots of evidence for it. These people saw it, yet they quickly forget. So numbers in many senses is showing just how challenging it is to work out for humanity, for God's chosen people to grow discontent. That seems to be the heart of this passage and of much of the desert wanderings, it's clearly the case here in Numbers 11. These people are discontent with how things are. So real briefly, what is contentment if these people are discontent? We talked about this when we went through Philippians, but just to remind you, contentment, I would argue, is acceptance of your circumstances with joy. It's accepting whatever circumstances you have with joy. Is joy happiness? Like, hooray! I just got in a car accident. This is awesome. You know, Cindy Michaels, who's recovering from a shattered elbow, you know, she's like, oh, yay! No. Joy, I would argue, is the deep assurance that God is at work, no matter what the circumstances. So, contentment, It's, hey, whatever the circumstances are, I'll face them with joy because I know God is at work. I can't see it, perhaps. It feels like my eyes have got dust in them, and I'm choking down dirt. But I know no matter what the circumstances God is at work. It doesn't make it easy. It doesn't minimize the pain and the suffering and the hardship. But there is something distinctive. I'm going to tell you there's something distinctive about knowing that God is at work. That I would argue those who follow Christ can have. It's distinctive. I know. I, I, it doesn't make it easy, but it is, there's a, a chance at contentment even when things are going wrong and even when things are going well, which can be the more difficult thing sometimes, because we tend to ascribe it to ourselves and we're in danger of pride. Contentment's different than complacency. Paul presses on towards goals for sure. And that definition really comes from Paul who was a Jew who met Jesus and then suffered greatly for his beliefs. Now listen to some what Paul experienced. I've been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from Jews the 40 lashes minus one, his own people. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night in the open sea. I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've gone cold and naked. And from all this, guess what he learned? The secret of contentment. No matter what I have, whether in plenty or in want. I want that. I'm kind of discontent about my lack of contentment. And I think that's a good thing. We want to pursue that. Those desert experiences in his life became opportunities for growth. What about Numbers chapter 4? Not so much. In fact, quite the opposite. Instead, we've seen signs of discontentment. So what I want to do now, just again briefly, is look at this text and think, first off, what are the signs potentially of discontentment in your own life that we see here in these people? Because we see them in verses 1 through 9. The first thing we see in verse 1 A a signal that you may be growing more and more discontent is complaining. I mean, now the people, if you're looking at the the text here, now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. And you know what happened next? Fire comes as well. If you find yourself complaining a lot, it could be that you're growing and and festering with discontentment, that the dust of discontentment is starting to take over. I have my students do, do an exercise where, just for one day, uh, one of them, they have a list of things to do, and one of them is not to complain. Just don't complain. For a day, you can try this out. Because so, there's something about thinking about when am I complaining? About the weather, about the food that's being served, about my circumstances, whatever they would drive, the way people drive, whatever. If you're aware of it, Right, And you start thinking, oh, wow, I'm complaining. Part of it is just becoming aware of that reality. And so see the Mondays and Wednesdays and come back on Wednesdays. They all admit that they failed in that category or that they quickly complained. And that's a sign of discontentment. I mean, you're, you're verbalizing what's inside your heart. You're not satisfied <laughs> with how things are. You're discontent. This puts it clearly. That's what they're complaining about. And what's interesting, again, from Paul, who deals with contentment, consider this. It's pretty straightforward. Do everything without complaining or arguing. But here's what happens when you do that so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe. You're distinctive you can cultivate this habit and I think that's why it's good to have this exercise of not complaining somehow you're shining like a star you have an opportunity teed up before you right there to take a swing at a complaining comment and you refuse to do it you're shining like a star I know that's a favorite verse of parents to children I get it you know do everything complain. what about you parents you're leading the way in doing this, the kids are largely learning from you, in many respects as well. How are we complaining about their complaining? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's this is hard to do. Now we see the second thing that happens to them—a uh, sign of discontent—is comparison. I mean, this is this is really a crack up. It's easy for us to see too. In verse four. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and saying, if only we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. And they go on to talk about the, the, the different things too. So you know what their status was in Egypt, of course. They were slaves. They didn't have any, they owned nothing. They, they didn't get any wages for their labor. And yet somehow... They're comparing and looking. It's almost like a false narrative that we tend to create about how things used to be, right? You forget about the way things were. I think we do this pretty frequently, too, as humans. We look back and kind of gloss over sometimes difficult things. But at the heart of it is comparison. This situation stinks relative to that situation, which, although we don't really remember all the bad parts, was much better that's the heart of comparison. Comparison is the thief of all joy. <laughs> it just is. You want to be content, which is accepting your circumstances with a joy. If you're going to, you're, you're wandering toward discontentment when you compare all the time. And we were talking about this in our triad as well. And again, with the devices. And I was saying, as a, as a parent in this modern era, and this is a new challenge Learning how to monitor the use of this particular device. And I, you can hear echoes of every single generation that has gone before me too. Yeah, in our generation, we didn't have this problem. Now, granted, there may be some distinctiveness and challenges in this. But underneath it all, it's the same thing. It's like every generation's facing some new challenges, aren't they? In a sense, I, I, I'm saying uh, underneath it, although I want to be aware of these unique things, gosh, I wish I was a parent in my parents' age. That <laughs> was a lot easier. It, it might have been in some ways, but, you know, sin is sin, and Walkmans existed back then. That was the great challenge. My kids tuning me out with a Walkman. That's consuming all their time. I don't know what it was before then because I wasn't around. It's probably rock and roll. (laughs) And who knows? You keep going back and back and back. If you find you're comparing whatever, and and this goes beyond the scope of future past generations, but what other people have that you don't, on whatever level, you're, you're feeding discontentment. At least that's what these people are doing here. They're, Creating a, a sense of how things used to, to be. and Well, they, they go even further, really. Because they forget about or minimize the blessings that they happen to have. I mean, they're complaining about all this stuff. We used to have all these things. But verse 6, but now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. And the, the, the sign of God's provision for them in the desert where there is no food. Miraculous provision of manna becomes the thing they're going to complain about. The very blessing that God has given them becomes a target for their dissatisfaction. Isn't that ironic? God's given them this amazing blessing of sustained food in the desert. We're tired of that. But manna bread. We want something different. I'm tired of Gold Star. I want Skyline. What's this stuff in the pantry? I'm going to Chipotle. Kids are such an easy target, aren't they? But that's us. That's us as well. We forget about the blessings God has given us. The manna was a continual reminder of God's provision. And looking at the bigger picture of numbers and the desert experience, I think we could add this to sign to discontentment. Blaming others for things that go wrong. This is what happens again and again with these people. Who is this Moses guy? Who is this God who brought us here? Even in in the next few chapters, Miriam and Aaron would grow jealous as well. And want to overtake Moses and blame him for some of the things. There's a lot of blaming that happens here too. And I, I just want to suggest that perhaps if you find your heart wandering into quickly blaming others for your current circumstances... You could be going into the the desert of discontentment. And this is where they're wandering. All of this scene, a challenge, really to the 10th commandment, do not covet, right? Don't covet what other people have. But be grateful. Instead, there's an opposite. Each of these commandments has kind of a don't. There's a flip side to it. Instead of not coveting, you're grateful for all that you have. That's the antidote to it. It's not just don't desire what others have, but focus on the many blessings God has given you. This is why I would argue that Jesus sometimes talks about the blessings, even of people who would be maybe considered poor. I, I think even circumstantially there's poverty is not great, but there's something about it that allows you to see God's hand of provision more quickly than those who have much. Some of these people, I mean, granted, the desert's not where they want to be. They're headed toward the promised land. But they're forgetting the most important thing is that God is with them. That's what really matters. This, This tent of meeting, this continual reminder of his presence, this manna, this person who is leading them, all are signs that God is with them, even in the dust bowl that they're experiencing in life. So don't give in to that discontentment. And in the face of this rabble, as they're called in verse 4, and the complaining and the blame and the hostility, Moses is just a picture of absolute calm, right? I mean, you know, these people are completely complaining and he's just like, I'm not ruffled by that, I'm a godly humble man. In fact, the next chapter says he's the most humble man of all, which I think is interesting because he wrote these books, but it's probably obviously... Obviously true, God has stamped his approval on it, and he's got a sense of humility before God. But it seems here that he gives us a glimpse of, you know, how we deal with this in a human way, but also, I think, a way that honors God as well. So what do we see here? When we feel discontent, uh, or it's dust settling on us. So there's discontentment of the people, and that dust is settling on him, and how does he respond to it? Well, he goes to, to God honestly. Moses, remember, is habitually going to the tent of meeting. I think that's important to remember because he's going to be very honest. And that Moses, his response here is like you're familiar with the concept of flooding, right? <laughs> when you're just flooded with everything and you're spinning. And I love that he goes to God with this. I'd, he is so overwhelmed with everything, the weight and the responsibility, but also the people who are complaining all the time around him. He says, well, did I give birth to these people? I mean, what, he, he just kind of, I mean, look what he says. Doesn't it sound like spinning to you? Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden on all these people, on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why did you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant? To land your promise on oath to their forefathers. Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me give, me. give us meat to eat. I can't carry all the burden by myself. The burden's too heavy. If this is how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now. If I've found favor in your eyes, don't let me face my own ruin. He's spinning. but He's spinning to God. We can all get flooded and lose sight. I think Moses is just overwhelmed. It seems that God knows the heart of Moses here. There's some freedom of expression. And one of the things that we need to learn to do is to start talking to God kind of reflexively. You know, a few few weeks ago we said we have our own tent of meeting. This kind of time we we can be with God and we can express things to him. I love the book of Psalms. I think it's my favorite. It's very honest. There's a lot of honesty in the Psalms about how people really feel toward God. You don't have to cover that up. He's going to God and he's being honest about how he's experiencing things. For some of us, it's easier to talk about God than to him. And this is what Moses is encouraging us to do. Talk to God about it. By the way, that's true for other people as well. It's easier for us to talk about other people than to them. But we need to learn to cultivate that sense of going to people, going to God reflexively. If it is a reflexive activity, then, of course, you're not going to be constantly complaining because there's lots of things to talk about God that are good. And he starts showing you what's good all around you as you're talking to him. It seems more like these people, other people, are just constantly only, only exclusively, it seems, coming with complaints to God. They're not meeting with him otherwise. That seems to be the case. Certainly, we know for Moses that he is this habitual meeting with God. And when he's overwhelmed, he comes to God with it. I'm overwhelmed. I know I'm at the brink of giving up. I feel like I wish I weren't here. I I don't understand all this stuff. I don't know why you have me here. I don't know why you chose me. I don't know how I can handle these people in my life who feel like a bunch of children. I'm not the right person for them. I can't do it. He's talking to God about that. How refreshing is that? This is Moses, the man of God. It's kind of like a relationship of a good father that a good father has with a child or a good parent with a child. And this is God's disposition toward us because of his own son, Jesus. That's what the book of Leviticus was about. The Lamb of God. Somebody had to suffer and pay and Jesus did. Why? So that you could know what it's like to be in relationship with God as a father-son, father-daughter relationship. A good one. You don't have to fear The fire coming when you complain anymore. Jesus took it. He was the one. He was the scapegoat. He was the perfect sacrifice. Now, you know his goodness. How does God look at you now? If you're in Christ, it's his son or daughter. And you have access and freedom here. When that discontentment and dust is settling on us to go to God honestly. But there's another thing here as well. And I would suggest that it seems we need to remember that we're not alone in this, that others can join us in carrying the burden. That's in verses 16 through 17. And that's pretty clear. God responds to Moses being flooded and saying, look, I'm giving you people around you, putting my spirit in them. You're not in this alone. You have others who come alongside you, engage you in this journey, especially when you're prone to discouragement and you could grow discontent. I've given you others. In this case, Moses has those who come around and assist him, but that, 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 that truth still remains. This says a lot about the community of faith and in the language of family that's in the Bible, too. Brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers. For those of you who leave even to follow Christ and experience the separation of family, I've given you hundreds of mothers and fathers. In its place. And this has a direct relationship even to all we've been talking about, about the moral law and the ceremonial law and the civil law. And Jesus distills all that and says, Love God and love others. Paul says, Galatians 6:2, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Wow. We want to fulfill the, the, the law of Christ. Love God, love others, carry burdens that other people have. I mean, you, you can't take on everybody's. Only Christ can do that. Because you, you're limited by space and time. But that means the people in your life around you aren't, aren't there by mistake. You have, and on the one hand, if you're somebody who's burdened, you need to let other people enter into that with you. That's where a lot of people, especially in you know, middle class situations, have a hard time. Or, or just culturally speaking, maybe, I can do this, I got this on my own. That's not fulfilling the law of Christ because you were designed to, to let others enter into that with you to lighten that load in some way. I remember uh, some of these stories just people tell me I remember because they're so, so apt and powerful. One woman with four or five kids I can't remember, who's, they were sick. I think I've told this story before but they were sick and she didn't want to burden anybody else you know, by asking for help. And at the end of that time, all these kids were sick. I think she was sick as well. This woman came to her door irate with her and said, how dare you rob me of the blessing of bringing you food when your family is sick like that? She thought she was being godly by not allowing anybody else to bear her burden. And she got a sound rebuke from somebody who loves to provide in that way who delights in giving. This is how she was designed. It's no wonder then that we read in the Bible when it comes to the gifts that God has given us, they're complementary gifts. You are not me and I'm not you and that's a good thing because I'm uniquely gifted and so are you and so are we together to function in a way God's spirit mentioned here in this text has given us gifts Why? Because we're a body functioning together. And yours may not seem as glorious but it's necessary. Every single one of us. That's a manifestation of God's spirit and goodness to us. Why? In part, obviously to glorify him but because we can't do this on our own. I can't do everything. Even in a local body, a local church. You bring something to the table that's absolutely vital and necessary. So do it. But at the same time, We have to allow each other to do that. This is part of the design. That's part of how we fulfill the law of Christ. The scene anticipates, obviously, what Paul says about gifts. And says that we're designed to be in relationship. Not just with others, but obviously with God himself. And the complaining that we do in life signals that something's wrong. The comparison with the past or how we want things to be the forgetfulness and the blaming, they signal that we are searching for a deeper satisfaction because we want more than just manna, don't we? And I don't mean that just like eating it, but I mean in a life as an, a picture of, do we just want the same thing over and over and over again? It's interesting that Jesus speaks exactly to this picture here. I mean, he literally speaks to it. In John chapter six, just as the living father sent me And I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. So once again, here we have this manna being provided is a foretaste of the one who would come and would meet the deepest hungers that we have. Lisa Graham McCain says I'm McMinn, we are eternal creatures made to experience something deeper and wider than our present earthly experience can satisfy. In a book called The Contented Soul. The manna was a picture of God meeting our deepest needs in Christ and of our opportunity to feed on him for our ongoing sustenance. So there's an opportunity for those who are dissatisfied with the manna of the world. There's something better. Something better is Christ. The bread of life, the one who came to fill our deepest longings. Your discontent because you cannot find full contentment apart from the bread of life. That's the claim that Jesus makes. Your discontentment signals that you were designed to find full satisfaction in some, somebody else. In me, I'm the bread, come and eat. And for those of us who have maybe tasted and seen that the Lord is good, there's a warning in this text as well. I think with respect to Christ, has he become manna to us? I mean, the the living one who we've we've partaken of, maybe he seems like he's just manna. And he's exciting our senses in this text as well to say, no, there's more going on. Be careful, being discontent. I'm the bread of life. I'm not manna. I'm the bread of life. He's driving us I think, again, to make sure that we're finding our satisfaction fully in him. Father, would you do that for us then? Give us the deep satisfaction that comes from Christ. And I pray that you'd make it painfully obvious to us, if we're people who say we follow Christ, where we have uh, gotten off course, where we're finding satisfaction truly in other things. Make us aware of where we're complaining, this week, of where we feel like we are minimizing the blessings that are all around us, or we're comparing, or maybe even where we're blaming others for things that are going wrong, and drive us to Christ. Not only because he's the one who gives us forgiveness, but he's the one who recalibrates us and, and reminds us, I am the bread of life. Father, would you do that in my life this, this week, as well as everybody else's, as we seek individual renewal for the glory of God and for the good of the world around us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.